Hey, let's pray real quick before we get started. God, I just want to thank you for the joy that we have in knowing that you are alive. I pray that you would continue to strengthen our belief in that. God, it's such a, it's such a, a, a difficult to understand concept that you could be dead and you could also now be alive. And I just pray that, that you would give us understanding of your presence and your power and your ability to, to live and to live in us and to live and to be active and working for us and working in us and working through us. And I just pray that, that just like we ended last week, that, that that knowledge would result in joy in our lives, that we would be excited about the truth of who you are, excited about the truth of what you're going to do here at CRC. And as we, uh, as we continue to study in Hebrews today, I just pray that you would continue to make yourself known better to us, continue to reveal who you are and how you work to us so that we can better reflect your nature to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 11. If you'd ever read Hebrews before we got into this book, I would venture to guess that this was the chapter that you were the most familiar with. This is one of the ones that a lot of people have quoted because uh, what's, what's the catchy church way of calling it? The Hall of Faith, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the cheesy way of describing this. This is where the author has been building a case for a long time. We've been, we've been kind of grouping it under this banner of Jesus is better. And we've been talking about New covenants versus old covenants. And one of the things that we keep seeing is that he's really kind of been revealing that he is consistent. He has always been consistent. He's always required the same things. Um, Though the actions that he requires may only be representative of his true desire. Because ultimately his true desire was that Jesus be glorified as our Savior. So he's been moving through this argument, building this case up, um, comparing and contrasting the old way versus the new way, the old covenant versus the new covenant, the old priesthood versus Jesus' new high priesthood. And and now he's going to get into this discussion on the idea of faith. And we're going to be in this for several weeks talking about faith. Today I kind of want us just to get an overview of what the big picture of, uh, behind the word faith is. Because we're going to read it a lot. And I want us to, when we read about the faith of all these people throughout history, as we go through chapter 11 over the next several weeks, I want us to be able to have the same picture in mind of what that looks like. Of what that is, what that means, what that means in us. So that as we continue to understand how faith has manifested itself in all these different people's lives throughout history. And we'll get into a few of them today. As it's manifested in their lives in different ways, we can, we can look back and say, we have this common, unified understanding about what faith is. And that we can then see how that's working out in their lives. And then we can probably connect to it ourselves. And we can see how faith is being lived out in our own lives. Or how faith ought to be lived out in our own lives. So that we're not going through this thinking... That I'm telling you, here's a list of ways, things that you can do to check off the I have enough faith box. Because what we talked about at the end of last, the last two weeks was that he offered them both a warning 
for having a life that's not filled with faith and an encouragement for having a life that is filled with faith, right? And he says, my people are united. Y'all are united around a common faith that's bringing you together. And that faith is going to cause you to endure. And so now he's going to get into his big explanation about how faith has played out throughout history. Hoping, I think, so that we can understand how faith ought to be playing out in our lives even now um, as we're reading this. So, so if our goal is to be in that group of people who, like we said last week, don't shrink back but are, but are filled with faith and, and, and follow after Jesus no matter what the cost may be, if we're going to be those people, I want us to know what that needs to look like in our lives. And I think that's what he's trying to explain here. Because he already established in chapter 10 that we are a united people, right? God is bringing us together. He is drawing us into himself and he's making us one people united together. What we're ultimately going to find out as we go through chapter 11 is that faith has been the means by which he's drawn his people together always. Right? We tend to separate faith as just the part that comes after Jesus. And what we're going to see is faith has played a vital role in the lives of the people of God for eternity. Ever since, ever since creation, which is what we're going to get into today. So go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I'm just going to start right here in the beginning. We're going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to talk just a little bit about them. So, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we'll stop right there. We're going to go a little further today. We're going to stop right here and get kind of the groundwork that he's laying out right here. So so the groundwork here, what is faith? And I'm going to answer this for you in like two minutes, and that's not true. So what is faith? He gives us two words to describe faith. Faith is assurance and conviction. So we need to understand what these two words are talking about. When you think of assurance... Um, you think of something that you are confident in. Uh, Another way that you could read this would be like resolute confidence. Like, I know that I know that I know something. How many of you have taken a test recently, and you got multiple choice, and you're torn between two answers? Right? You're like, it's one of those two. I'm very confident that it's one of those two. But can you say that you're confident in the answer that you give? Probably not. Most of the time, you're like, which one seems most likely to not be it? And just eliminate it so you can get the right answer. Right? That's not assurance. I don't have assurance of that answer. I haven't, maybe it's because I haven't studied enough. But really what it is is that I don't have full knowledge of the answer. Right? I don't, I don't completely understand the answer to the question. And so I am not fully confident in the answer that I'm going to give when I'm given that question on that test. Or maybe it's when somebody asks you a question about your opinions about some sort of current event, or, or you're just in conversation, they ask you what you thought about some movie, anything. And you're not able to give them a real answer because you don't really understand the concept behind the question. Right? You don't really know. You don't have real understanding, so you don't have confidence in your answer, and, you tend to, and you're going to tend to make something up. Right? 
We've all, we've all made up or, or tried to give our best guess at an answer before. I love essay questions, by the way. If you're talking about tests, a lot of people hate essay questions. Uh, if you're good at ad-libbing, you love essay questions because you just kind of throw words at it until you eventually find something that sticks, right? That, that, but, but is that really confident? Am I really confident in my answer? Or am I more confident in my ability to come up with something that resembles an answer? Right. My, my confidence is not in my knowledge about what I've been tested on. My confidence is in my own ability to do the best that I possibly can to make something up that I think a teacher might find somewhat acceptable and hope for some sort of partial credit. But that's not, that's not confidence. I don't have faith in my ability to answer this question. And that's kind of the idea that he's throwing at us here. Um, resolute confidence. We know Jesus we know him to be real, and we are confident in him. Faith is confidence in a thing that, that, that we're hoping for. A promise made. Salvation. I am going to bring you into glory. You will be my people living with me for all eternity. That is, we have confidence in the hope of that promise. One of the things that we're going to see as we continue to read through about all of these different people is a lot of them did not actually realize the result of the promise they were hoping in during their lifetime, at least fully. So, so their faith was based on something that was going to come much later than they were. And sometimes we're going to be asked to do that. We're going to be asked to have confidence in something that we're hoping in, something that hasn't happened yet. Maybe that's something we've been praying for, or maybe that's just the promise that Jesus says, I'm going to rule and reign over you, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and we're going to be together. But we, we're called to have confidence, assurance, in these promises that have been made to us. One of the things, and, and I loved the way, I was reading one of the commentaries that I was studying this week, and I loved the way it said it, um, like, like confidence is, is not immovable dogmatism, but vital certainty. So it's, it's, not, it's not based in, I'm set in my ways, I know that I know something, when in fact I don't. Um, because, because if you're hoping that something is going to get, say, say you're hoping for a brighter future, Right? But that's not based in any reality. That's not based on Jesus. That's not faith that you have. That's optimism. Does that make sense? We, we, we can put our hope in something, but if the thing that we're hoping in isn't a reality, we're only being optimistic about the future. We're not actually grounding our faith in something that's real. Because the point that he's trying to make here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We don't see them, but they are in fact real so that our faith is placed in something of value. Our faith is placed in something that we actually believe in because it is actually to be believed in. We can't put our faith in nothing or else is it really faith? That's kind of the question that I want us to be throwing around in our mind. Can we have faith in something that isn't real? And I don't think that we can. I want you to get that distinction in mind. If, if you're just hoping in something that's not Jesus, you're just being optimistic. And optimism doesn't always end happily for you. 
Jesus ends happily for you. Because Jesus is real, and Jesus is going to fulfill all of these promises that he's made. Jesus is going to help you realize the hope that he's given you. Right? So we've got the word assurance. Resolute confidence. We're confident in who Jesus is. We're confident that Jesus is. And we're confident that he's going to bring all of his promises to fulfillment. And then it's a conviction of things not seen. Um, There's a couple of different ways that you could read the word conviction. I like the idea that conviction is something that's going to move you to action. One of the things that we're going to continue to see as we read about the lives of all these men later in uh, chapter 11 is that their faith spurred them to do something. It resulted in some sort of action taken in their life. Uh, If you think about the idea of being convicted of sin, when you are truly convicted of your sin, you respond in repentance. That conviction moves you to some sort of action, some sort of separation from your sin, if that's what that kind of conviction is based on. Right? So, so a conviction of things not seen. We, we, we so know that Jesus is real that we are moved to do something based on our faith in Him. Right? Uh, if, you, if you read the book of James, it's going to describe faith as being dead if it's separated from any action. Right? Faith without works is dead. Our faith will move us to do something. We aren't going to say, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to be on the couch. Call me if you need me. Our faith requires more of us or, or puts something in us that will make us want to do something more than just sit on the couch. That's the idea. These people, every time, I think back through when we were studying in the book of Acts, and you'd see, and, so, and Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and this person was filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're given a real thing that they've placed their faith in, that they're, they're getting this extra set of assurance for, and they're, and they're caused to do something. They, they jump into action. They don't sit still. And that's the idea that I want us to get here when we talk about faith. We're confident in who Jesus is, and we're moved to action because of our confidence. Because, uh, we can go back to the, the test example. Say you are split between two answers on a multiple choice test. right? If you're not very confident... How quickly are you going to get done with that question? Right? Does anybody else do this? If you say, I have an hour to take this test, and this is a 50-question test, so I have one minute and four seconds, or whatever it is. That was quick math. Probably close. I have like one minute and a few seconds per question. And so I'll be like, okay, that one I got done in like a second and a second and a second. Okay, so I've banked up three minutes on this question. So I can sit here and think about it. Did anybody else do this? Okay, this is just a me thing, so this is just <laughs> confession time with Tanners. Okay, Daniel does it. Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand. <laughs> Glory. Amen. But when I don't have confidence, I'm not really moved to action on this one question. I don't really know the answer, so I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait. I'm going to sit back. But if I know that I know the answer to something... I'm not going to sit there and take my fully allotted one minute and four seconds that I have on that test question. Because I'm confident. Let's move. Let's do this. Let's get this done. Let's step out. Let's answer this question. Let's get through this because I know what it is that I'm dealing with here. And I think the same thing is true with our faith in Jesus. Like, if if we aren't being active, if 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 we're shrinking back, to use the language 
um, of our text last week. If we're shrinking back, it's because we don't really have faith in Jesus. We don't know that we know that we can trust Jesus. And so we're scared. We shrink back. We're afraid. We don't do anything. But a life filled with faith is going to be a life filled with action. A life filled with pursuing Christ and pursuing the will of Christ. Pursuing the mission that Christ left for us. It's not going to be stationary. It's going to be moving forward. So let's look at verse 2. For by it the people of old received their commendation. We're going to get more into this idea. But I want us to get this idea in our head. That it's always been faith. That has been the vehicle that God has used to bring his people together. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in just a bit. But, but we have to have this idea in our brains. That, that he has been consistent from day one. Faith in him is what he desires. Trusting in him. Knowing him is what it takes to be, into the pre- to be in the presence of God. And we tend to leave faith for the New Testament, right? And we think of law and works in the Old Testament. That's our mindset. And that was the mindset of the people that the author of Hebrews is... That's, that's their mindset as he's coming into this message. But what we've seen throughout this is that, that God is very consistent throughout all of history. He doesn't change, right? And he's given us examples throughout history and throughout the Old Testament that point toward, and that's what we talked about several weeks ago, the things in the Old Testament, the law, the sacrifices, are just a shadow of the reality of what you really desire, which was which was. A full atonement for sin because of the work of Christ. So his desire has always been faith. And that has always been the vehicle by which he has awarded people, you know, relationship with him. So we got to keep this in our brains. Uh, I'll go ahead and read this real quick. We're going to come back to Romans 3. So if you want to turn to Romans 3, we're going to end up back in Romans 3. But I'll go ahead and read this really quickly. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So they pointed to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This has always been God's mindset. Faith in His Son. Faith in God. True belief. Confidence in who He is. Confidence that moves us to action. And I'm going to go ahead and read verse 3 one more time. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Our faith is rooted in reality. Like, the fact that things are real, the fact that the chair that you're sitting in is real, the fact that the car, it's, re- it's not like a, this, this imaginary kind of imagined thing. The fact that there are things, yeah, that makes sense. The fact that there are things is, is proof that God is real because there would be no things, or nothing, I guess would be a better way to say that. There would be nothing apart from God making it, right? And he's giving us this idea, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There are a couple of different ways that you could translate that. You could translate that as there were invisible things that God made us able to see. And I think there's a really cool uh, parallel to the idea of salvation in that. Um, Being given vision of something that we couldn't see before. 
giving us a better understanding. But, but it also can be translated, and I think this is more what the text is trying to get at. He made something out of nothing. Like there was no matter before creation. And he says, even from the beginning, we have to, we have to root our faith that even from the beginning, God made everything from nothing. And that's why it is such a vital thing when we talk about the idea of the beginning of the world and our understanding of God as creator. Like, like our faith has to be rooted in God as creator. Because if he's not creator, if he didn't make everything, then everything isn't his. Does that make sense? He made the world, the world is his, to do with whatever he pleases. And our faith has to be rooted in him as creator. Because if we lose sight of that, we're gonna, we, lose, we lose the basis by which this whole book is kind of grounded on. It starts there, and then it moves forward. Um, so he starts here, right before he's going to start getting into all these testimonies of all these different people throughout history, he says... But even the fact that the ground that these people were standing on was created by God. We have faith in that. We have confidence that God even made that. Um, so we have to have our faith firmly rooted in God as creator. So now he's going to begin to move into his examples of salvation. Uh, uh, not salvation. Faith as it uh, manifested itself throughout history. Um, we're going to just do a few of these. We're going to read verses 4 through 7 here real quick. Um, just to kind of get a taste for where we're going. And then for the rest of this chapter, we're just going to kind of talk about different lives of people. And we'll go from there. So, um, chapter 11, I'm going to pick up in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, he, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, we're going to start with all these guys from way back in history. This is the very beginning of mankind. The ones that, if there really was a separation between the way God was going to save people, works versus faith, these would be the ones that are the farthest away from the faith side of things. Right? These are the ones as far back as we can go. And he's saying, and we'll just start. We'll start with Cain, oh not, yeah, Cain and Abel and Enoch. He sets up this contrast, right, of faith manifesting itself in the lives of two people with very different results, right? Abel, his faith led to his death. Enoch, his faith led to having never died. So faith can manifest, can, the, the results of faith, the way God can use our faith can can take us in very different places to very different to very different places in very different directions. And so I think it's it's notable just that that contrast is set up immediately that just because you have faith doesn't mean your faith is going to live out in your life the exact same way that this guy's did. That's why we can't base our faith on the actions of past Christians or famous pastors or 
our parents or the pastor at the church where we grew up. We can't, we can't define ourselves based on the faith of others. Because God is going to use the faith in different people's lives in very different ways. And he's, and he's working out this story. He's working out all of history in a very specific way. And he knows exactly where he's going with this. But we need to be defined by our faith in Jesus, not by our faith in somebody else. Does that make sense? Because ultimately, Jesus is the only one who is truly consistent and worthy of our full assurance. He's the only one that we can trust perfectly. You might trust me a little bit, but don't trust me perfectly. Because, because my, my actions are rooted in my faith in Jesus, because apart from him, I would be nothing. I would do nothing for him. Right? So, so we can't just think, okay, he's going to give us this list of guys. If we, pick, if we pick the kind of faith that Abel showed, we're going to have a life like Abel's. If I pick a life like Enoch had... Well, man, I'm not going to have to die. That's going to be awesome. So I think I'm going to go with that one. Because that's not how God works. God has a specific plan for each person, and he's going to work it out in his own way. So let's talk about, let's talk about Abel first. Uh, story Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. Um, if you're not familiar with it, these were the first two kids, the first two siblings ever. And just kind of setting the pace for the rest of siblings, for the rest of history, they did not get along perfectly well. Uh, if you don't have a sibling, you're missing out on the idea of a good sibling rivalry, which, which manifests itself no matter how well behaved, no matter how well behaved your, your sibling, you and your sibling are. At some point, you're going to butt heads over something. These guys just happen to butt heads over a pretty big deal, uh, the way, that the offering that they brought to God. And what we see in Genesis chapter 4 is um, Cain worked fields. He was a farmer, and he brought, it just describes it as, he brought some of his harvest before God. He brought some of what he had grown to give to God. Abel, it says, who was a shepherd, brought the best of his sheep and the best portions of his sheep. And offered those to God. And God, it says God commended Abel. And in his jealousy, because God rejected Cain's offering, Cain killed his brother. Right? I mean, you have creation, chapter 1. Creation of man, chapter 2, Genesis. Sin, chapter 3. Murder, chapter 4. Right? That's how quickly, that's how quickly things escalated. Things got out of hand really fast. Immediately, brother kills brother. But what we also have to see, and, and it says it here in chapter 11, that, that even though he died, right, because God had commended Abel, his, the record of his faith lives on, even though he did not. Right, right. Our faith, if we have, if we have that resolute confidence in who Jesus is, that spurs us to action, right, his faith resulted in, I'm going to give him the best of what I have. I'm going to give the best of what I have back to God. Which ought to be our heart. Maybe it's not that we're, we're a shepherd and we have this lamb that we're going to slaughter and offer to God. But we have something of ours that is the best of ours. And we want to offer that to him. We want to give him the best of who we are. And his faith, his faith in his life, he, he, was, he was spurred to that action. Spurred to give the best of what he had. 
But it also says, and if you read, and if you read Genesis chapter 4, it's, he did offer a more acceptable sacrifice. Um, in Genesis 4.4, 4, it says that God had regard for Abel and his offering. So it's not, it's not just that he offered the right thing. It's not just that there was this checkbox that he said, oh, if I, God said he would accept my offering if I gave him the right thing, if I did the right thing, if I took the right step, if I had the right action. God already had regard for Abel because his heart already sought the will of God. Like, he already had that confidence in who God was. He already wanted to give the best of who he was. He was already defined by his relationship with God, not by his relationship with whatever it was that he had. Does that make sense? So, so he had regard for Abel because of Abel's faith, apart from his works. The works were a result of his faith, but, but God already had regard for Abel. So don't let us get too bogged down in the, well, he offered the right sacrifice, or he, he gave God the right thing. It's not, that, it's not that Cain only gave him fruits and vegetables from his harvest. It's that in his heart, he didn't want to give God the best of what he had. He wanted to hold something back for himself. And that was what was different between the two of them. So, so we have to have a heart like Abel's that wants to give God the best of what we have. And then verse 5, we get this description of Enoch. There's, a not, there's not a lot said about Enoch, except that it says he pleased God. And isn't that a really cool title? Hi, I'm Enoch. I please God. I make God happy. God wants to hang out with me so much that he's not going to make me go through this whole living up to this point where I die. He just wants to hang out now. So he's going to call me home. And as a result of my relationship with him, because he had a real relationship with God, right? Because, because they were able to communicate together because they had common interests. It sounds like things that you tell people when you're trying to like teach them how to make friends. It's like, find some common interests. Find things that y'all want to talk about together. But that's kind of how Enoch's relationship with God was. They got along well. Right? He knew that God was real and he wanted to be with God. He wanted to communicate. His desire was not, it wasn't my time and then my time with God. It was God. It was his desire to be with his Father. And so his reward for that, because, because he had built this, because he and God had this relationship, God rewarded him without having to fear death. He just said, you come with me, let's go. I don't know what that looked like. I know what it looked like with Elijah, who had a very similar experience, except he got like this flaming chariot. That's a cool way to go. But what we see is we see these people who grew so close to God that it says, it, it basically says, it made God happy to be around them. How happy is God to hang out with you? Probably, it's probably similar, well, I don't know. How happy are other people to want to hang out with you? 
And for what reason? Why do people want to hang out with you? Because just because you're funny or what is it? Or, or do people want to hang out with you because you're a genuine person who is honest and, and trustworthy and, and they can feel safe talking to you about whatever it is? Or, or are you dishonest and, and rude or annoying? That's probably me. I'm probably the annoying one. Sarcastic, that's definitely me. And then, do you define who you are by how pleasing you are? How, how, how easy it is for God to want to be around you? Because there are lots of times that I think, I'm in a, it, it, like I, I think I said this last week, it's before 10 a.m. I don't want to be around anybody. And I bet nobody wants to be around me. And if I'm in that kind of mood, how much does God want to hang around me? Probably not. Probably not. Our faith ought to result in an attitude that is pleasing to God. It ought to drive us to a place where we are the kind of people that enjoy the presence of God and God enjoys us being in His presence. We don't want to be that guy that when we want to come hang out with God, He's like, oh, it's Him. I don't want to be around that guy. That's not us. That's not who we should be. We want to be like Enoch. We want to be somebody whose, whose presence pleases their creator. And we talked a little bit about this last one. We were kind of talking about our attitudes. Like, like, like if we know that Jesus is real and we know that we really have salvation, that ought to excite us. We ought to be excited. We ought to be happy. We ought to be joyful about that. And I think if we, are, if we are joyful about who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, then that's the kind of attitude that's going to be pleasing to God. And we're going to see other examples of things in people's lives that are pleasing to God throughout chapter 11. But, but you might just write yourself a note. Am I being the kind of person that God would want to hang out with? And just ask yourself that. Does God want to be around me? Or am I the kind of person that God's going to be like, I'm going to go hang out with them. Because they're happy to be around me. They're excited to be around me. The cool thing is, we don't become those kind of people on our own. And I'm not going to try to give you this checklist of, these are the things that please God, so just check these boxes and all of a sudden, God's going to want to hang out with you. Because the truth of the matter is, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, God shouldn't want to hang out with any of us because of who we are. But praise be to Him. He makes us into His people, and He makes us look more like His Son, Jesus. And He makes us the kind of people that He wants to hang out with. So it's more we need to be asking ourselves, Is my life so grounded in my faith in who Jesus is right now? Do I see myself becoming more like him? Am I being spurred to the action of becoming more like Jesus? Because if you can't answer this question, if you answer the question, does God want to be around me right now with no, I would start with, then do you know him? Because if you know him, you're going to start becoming the kind of person he wants to be around. Because that's what he said he would do for his people. He would make them more like his son.
So just based off those two right there, we can ask this question. And this is obviously not going to be an, exclu- um, not an exclusive list. An exhaustive list, that's the word. So what are the results of having faith? A heart that gives God what he deserves. Right? A heart that is going to give God the best of what we have. Um, we're going to have open communication with God. Faith will result in our ability to communicate with our Creator. Um, we don't have to fear death. Right? I mean, look at Abel. His legacy lives on. Even though our faith can result in death. Right? I mean, you have Enoch who didn't die, but you have Abel who died seemingly early. But we know that if we live a life of faith, that does result in death, right? We talked about, we talked about suffering a good bit in the last couple of weeks. Um, we know that for most of us, and I say most because there were these two guys that we just talked about that didn't die, but for most of us, our lives are going to end with death, like, like the rest of us. So we have that promise, that, that we have that knowledge that it's coming, but our death doesn't have to mean nothing. Our death can mean that it leaves this legacy behind us. Look at the life of faith that this person lived. Look at how they communicated with God openly. Look at how they gave him the best of everything. Look at, look at the faith that these people had. And as we're going to see in just a few minutes, well, actually right now, so we're about to move on to verse 7. One of the results of having faith is that we're going to get to see salvation. Our faith will result and our salvation. So let's move on to verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that got to the... an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's my reading out loud again. Um, Noah was the first guy in history to actually act in faith based on a specific promise. God said, I'm going to kill everybody with a flood except you and your family. Better start building a boat. And we think that's crazy enough as it is, but it's even crazier when you realize it hadn't even rained. Ever. Period. Like, like he said, it's going to rain. And they're like, what's that? Water is going to come down from the sky. And so much of it, the whole earth is just going to be a giant ocean. And God's going to kill everybody. Except me and my family. And all the animals. We're going to hang out together. Right? So he's being given this charge to do take this action that's rooted in a danger that no one can truly comprehend because they've never really experienced anything like this in history. And if you and if you study and if you look at the story of Noah right before he's introduced, there's a verse that says everybody was wicked, everybody did what was right in their own eyes, the whole earth was broken. And then it says But God found favor with Noah. God picked Noah as the guy he was going to use. 
And then God cultivated this relationship with Noah. They got to know each other. They, Noah's faith grew in who God was. He, was. he was filled with confidence in the reality of God and in the power of God to, to control His creation and to do with His creation whatever He pleased because He was God and He was righteous and He knew what was best. And so, he had faith that was rooted in reality so that when God said, now it's time to build a boat, he said, I'm on it. Let's do it. His faith moved him to action. His faith moved him to build a boat. His faith moved him to, get his, to, to allow his family to be the public ridicule of the world. But what was the result? He and his family did not die. He was saved from the destruction of all of mankind. His faith resulted in his salvation. And, and that's the part of faith that we tend to talk about the most. Faith resulting in salvation. Because I think that's probably the one that gets us the most excited. Right? The idea of you are no longer slave to sin, bound for judgment. You are now one of the righteous, being made righteous sons of God. He has, he has brought you into His family. He has promised you life forever with Him. That's the part that ought to get us excited. We get excited about all that. I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't get excited about all that. But that's the one that, that tends to get us the most excited. And that's the one we talk about the most. Because that's the part that so directly relates to our mission as the church. Proclaiming salvation. We have a God who can save, and we have a God who will save. We have a God who desires to save. And I love the way it describes how he constructed an ark. In reverent fear. Um, if you know God for who He is, and you have been given a glimpse of the power, the might, the magnitude, the anger that burns in him over sin, then I think fear is the most appropriate response that we could have to being in the presence of God. And I think a lot of us are a little too relaxed about the idea of being in the presence of God. We are created things, and he is our creator. And he can... Wipe us off the face of the earth just like that. That is the power of our Creator. And, and it says, Noah constructed an ark in reverent fear. He understood the power of God because he understood who God was. Because he knew who God was. Because his faith was rooted in reality. The real power of who God is. So I don't want us to miss that We believe in Him, and because we believe in Him, we have a hearty respect for who He is and the power that is in Him. So, this is the question that I think is the most important when we're talking about this idea of faith. And that's, where does faith come from? 
If you want to ask it a different way, it's, am I able to manufacture muster of my faith all on my own? That's the question. That's a, that's a big question. Because, because all of these guys performed certain actions and had a certain level of faith. So are you saying all I have to do is just believe really hard, think really hard on something, and all of a sudden all these things are going to start happening? Is that faith? And I think we have to go back to this idea that our faith is rooted in something that's real. If our faith isn't, isn't rooted in a real experience providing real understanding and knowledge of a real God, it's just optimism. Our faith isn't in something that's real. Because there are a lot of people that have faith in a God. But if their faith isn't in the God, the real God, as he has revealed himself to us, and that's the key phrase, as he reveals himself to us, what is that faith going to amount to if it is not in the creator of everything? So how do we know... Or, or how do we get a faith that isn't just blind optimism? I'm going to go ahead and turn back over to Romans chapter 3. You may still have that saved there. I'm going to turn there real quick. Except all my pages are going to stick together. Okay, here we go. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. We're going to read through verse 20. Now you have to realize in, in Romans... Paul is building an argument about how salvation really works to the Jews or to the church in Rome um, saying that salvation isn't just for the Jews but salvation is for everybody. And he's building a case kind of in a similar way that the author of Hebrews does. So, so let's pick up here in Romans chapter 3 verse 9. And he's asking the question, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, what he's saying is, we are all broken. We are all wicked. We can go back to verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. When it says no one, it means no one. So how does, this, how does this relate to where I'm going? We have to have a healthy understanding of how powerful sin is in our lives. If we downplay the idea of sin, 
And we say, sin isn't so invasive in my life that, that I can pull myself up to God in some way. Well, we're basing our salvation based on our own actions. And Paul's saying right here, that doesn't happen. We are so stained by the power of sin that there is nothing within us that will seek God. That means there is nothing in us that can build a true faith in God. So how do we get our faith? We can't, because what... Because we can't, if we can't seek God, if we can't go looking for Him, then we also can't find our own understanding of the reality of who He is. Without, we have to have a real experience with God to begin to know Him. So He has to take some initiative. I'm going to go on. Still in Romans chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's the same idea as what Hebrews has been saying. These things are real. These things are important. But these things are just pointing towards something else. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all, here we go, and are justified. This is again, this is all. All have sinned and all are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. I'll stop right there. I could keep going. I really like this chapter. The grace of God is the greatest gift that he could give. God reveals himself to us. People who, apart from his intervention, would not seek him. Right? If we understand how broken we are, we have to understand how broken we are. And if we are... So lost in our sin, it is only God who could do anything for us. It is only God who can reveal Himself to us. We would know nothing about God if He did not inspire the words in this book. It is through this book that He reveals Himself to us. And as He reveals Himself to us, we now have a reality that we can ground our faith in. Faith comes from a genuine experience with God. We can't, we can't think of faith as, as our half of the work. putting too much on ourselves if we do that. Because, because then I can think, I have to just have enough faith. I can read through the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, and I can read about uh, Abraham, and I can read about Moses, and I can read about all of these different people that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks and think, well, they did this, they did this, they did this. <coughs> if 
I do that, then I'm good. That's showing enough faith in my life. And all I'm doing is saying, look, I can do what I need to do to attain the favor of God all on my own. And what I'm trying to say is, we can't get that mindset as we go into this, as we go through this chapter. Because there's a lot of really cool things that happen as a result of faith in the lives of these people. But all of those things happened as a result of the faith in their lives. And that faith happened as a result of the intervention of God in their lives. Because without the intervention of God, they would continue to only seek for themselves. They wouldn't chase after God on their own. God reveals himself to be faithful to us. And, that, and, that's, and that's an important thought because, because if we were fa- putting our faith in something that was not trustworthy, that wasn't proven to be faithful, none of it would matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there real quick. This is also a really good chapter. I was reading through this last night and I wanted to just put the whole thing, but I'm not gonna. But it's a good chapter and you should read it because it'll make you very, very excited about the work that God is doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to pick up in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, by a man has also come has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If Christ hadn't been proven to be faithful, none of it matters. It doesn't matter how much faith you have if the object of your faith is not himself faithful. But he says, but in fact he is. In fact, he was able to overcome death. So don't root your faith in something that is weighty. Something that you can't really trust in perfectly. Our hope is in Jesus And our hope is in the reality that he he alone was able to die after living a perfect life so that we could be made his people. So that he could rise again. So that he could raise us to new life with him. That's that joy that I was talking about last week. And so because we have this real experience with who Jesus is, and we, we're given this resolute confidence in who He is, let us be spurred to action. Let us not just sit back. Let us not shrink back. We read that last week. We're not those people. We don't just sit back. We move forward having full confidence in who, in who Jesus is. Let's give Him the best of what we have. Let's hold nothing back. There is nothing here that should define you. Be defined by Jesus. Let's pray.
God, I pray this morning that you would reveal yourself to us in a very real way. That we could have a shared real experience with your Holy Spirit this morning that that you would fill us with such confidence in who you are and what you are doing that whatever's going on in our life whatever whatever we may be struggling with whatever we may be trying to take care of on our own, whatever we may be defining ourselves by, we could just let go of. We could just surrender them to you. God, there are people in here right now that I know have not had a real experience with you, and I pray that you would reveal yourself to them right now. Please. God, fill us with the kind of faith that moves us to action. God, I just pray that in a hundred years, when everybody that's in this room is gone, that like Abel, we would have that same lasting legacy of those were people who were full of faith. Those were people who trusted in God no matter what the consequence may be. They gave the best of what they had. So God, I just pray that You would move us to action, that we would not sit still. In Jesus' name, Amen.